Well, this morning, we're going to experience, <laughs> in Matthew chapter 15, it just kind of makes me laugh, this story. We're going to experience one of the most unusual encounters of Jesus with a person in need. It's a mother in need in Matthew chapter 15. It is an unusual story, and it is a story that bothers us a little bit until I think we understand all of what is going on. So if you have your Bible or your device with you this morning, open that to Matthew chapter 15, and I will begin reading in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter, that very hour, was healed. Now, this story, I think for centuries has bugged Christians a little bit. Um, It's been one of the more perhaps difficult passages of the New Testament for believers to deal with, to grapple with. Surely this isn't the Jesus that we've been reading about, that we've been encountering in all of the other stories of the Gospels. Surely this isn't the Jesus, the Son of God, whose ethic, whose teaching was founded on this foundation of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love each other as I have loved you. Love your enemies. Surely this isn't that Jesus, the one who loved the unlovables the one who welcomed the outsiders. But there it is, carefully written down by Matthew in the middle of his gospel. There it is. Jesus and his his 12 apostles have gone off the grid. They are outside of the the parameters of of the boundaries of Israel. They have escaped from the pressures and the scrutiny of ministry under the eye of the Pharisees and the pressures of of hordes of people constantly wanting something from Jesus. They've gotten away for a little retreat up in Phoenicia, up in Syria, up between these two pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon. There they were. And there she is, this desperate mother She acknowledges the lordship of Jesus right off the bat, and she pleads for help. She cried out. We know what crying out is like, don't we? When the tank is empty. When there's nothing in your emotional, psychological, or spiritual tank left 
to use when you're at the end of your rope, when you have no more resources, when you don't know what else to do, you cry out. When a rebellious child gets into serious trouble, mom cries out. When there's a telephone call late at night and it's the police telling you that your spouse has been in a serious traffic accident, you cry out. Twelve years ago in Rio de Janeiro, when David was born and there was a tumor on his spinal cord that you could see the second he was born, we cried out. We know what it's like to cry out, don't we? And this Canaanite woman encounters Jesus, and from the depths of her suffering, she cries out for help. Lord Jesus, help me. She pleads for help because her daughter is being terrorized by a demonic a demonic presence in her life. And we don't get details from Matthew about what that's like, but in the rest of the Gospels, we get glimpses of what demons can do to someone's life, how they can tear it apart. From seizures to, to someone being deaf because of a demon or unable to speak because of a demon or trying to injure themselves because of a demon, it's a horrific thing. And as I experience this story, as we experience this story, I just wonder what years have gone before this? What years of torment for this mother and her daughter have gone before this? What have they been through together? Has her mother had to tie her down so that she won't attempt to kill herself or harm herself? I don't know. But she's suffering. And while, yes, it's sad to think about her torment. And we know that her daughter's going to be healed, so that takes the ease off there a little bit. While it's sad to think about the suffering they went through together, that's not what bothers us about this story, is it? What bothers us about the story is Jesus. What bothers us about the story is his reaction to her and his lack of reaction to her. He does essentially, before you get to the end of the story, he does essentially three things. He ignores her, he excludes her, and he embarrasses her. And this is not what we expect from Jesus at all. And as this mother who is tortured by having a demon-possessed daughter cries out. Matthew says in verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. She doesn't quit. She keeps begging. She keeps asking. Jesus says nothing. Finally, the disciples weigh in. Finally, they've had enough of this annoying lady who's been following them around crying out. So they say, Lord Jesus, just send her away. Get rid of her. So if you're tracking, if, if, you're, tra- or if you're keeping an eye on the love-ometer of the disciples here, the disciples are tracking at a zero, aren't they? I mean, their response to a desperate mother crying out is, get rid of her, please. Later on, 
When other mothers begin coming to Jesus and the fathers become coming to, Je- coming to Jesus with their children so that, so that the Lord might bless them, the same kind of thing happens. You remember that story. They're trying to block these children from getting to Jesus. Don't bother him. He's too busy. You guys are a frustration. You're an annoyance. You're an interruption in his important ministry. They try to send the children away. And of course, Jesus doesn't let them do that. But we see the hearts of the disciples, and we see that they're not where they're supposed to be. So yes, we are bothered that Jesus ignores this poor mother, we're, 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 we're bothered that he excludes her. She's not a child of Israel. We're bothered that he embarrasses her. I'm not supposed to be feeding the dogs. I'm supposed to be feeding the children of Israel. We're bothered, but please pause that bother for a moment. It's very important if you're going to understand what's going on in this story and what Jesus is doing, very important to appreciate where the disciples are at. And they're not doing well here. This woman is a bother. This woman is an interruption. This woman is a pagan. And this woman is, well, a woman. So why would we talk to her? Why would we interact with her? Why would we help her. Those are all strikes against her in the first century. They want Jesus to get rid of her. They want Jesus to send her packing. And Jesus says, no, I won't even do that because I wasn't sent to deal with non-Israelites. That may come later, but right now I'm focused on Israel. I won't even do that for this lady. So finally he speaks, still not speaking to the woman, right? Saying something that fits right in with the theology of the apostles. He's getting some amens here. He's getting some attaboys here. I mean, they see her as a pagan. They see her as an outsider. They see her as someone of little to no importance. And so what Jesus is saying seems perfectly logical to them. Now, the woman is overhearing this, but she hasn't gone anywhere. She's still there. She throws herself now at the feet of Jesus, and she says, Lord, help me. Now Jesus really throws us for a loop, as if excluding her by saying she's not a child of Israel, as if ignoring her by not addressing a single word to her up to this point in the story. He finally says something in her direction, and it goes like this, verse 26. Not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Well, I would love to be able to bail this out for you guys and make this sound polite and sweet, but it's not. If it sounds rude to you, it is kind of rude. I mean, the only thing that makes it a little bit less rude is the word he uses for dogs is kunarois, which is puppy. Instead of the more common kuon, which is a dog. The bread's not for the puppies, it's for the children. All right. And then remarkably, 
This is so cool, isn't it? This woman doesn't back down. She doesn't go slinking off back to her house. She comes right back at Jesus. She takes his words and she turns them back on him. And she says, verse 27, Hey, you're right, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She's bold, and she's clever, and she acknowledges the truth. If you're saying that you were sent first to the Israelites, okay, but aren't there going to be a few morsels or scraps for those of us who aren't? Now, even a pup like me should be entitled to eat some scraps off the floor. And if you own a dog, you understand all of this perfectly. Every dog understands this. Every dog is barking amen to this. There, it, there's not a dog bill of rights, okay? But if there was, enshrined in the dog bill of rights up near the top would be the right to consume food that falls off of the dinner table. Then it's yours. At least that's the way it works at our house and most houses that have dogs. Can't argue with her logic. It's pretty airtight here. Verse 28, Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And all of the believers kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Still kind of bothered me a little bit, but he did heal her and he did praise her faith. Everything is great, right? Well, Let's dig a little bit. If this story sounds totally out of sorts with Jesus, if this doesn't sound like the Jesus we encounter in the rest of the New Testament, maybe, just maybe, something is going on below the surface of the story. Maybe there is more than Jesus just being wiped out, having a bad day, and being a little bit cranky, right? Now, I believe that there has never been a teacher quite like Jesus. I believe that there was, there's never been a human being able to embody and communicate truth in the way Jesus was able to communicate truth. 2,000 years later, billions of people still order their lives around the teachings of this itinerant rabbi. 2,000 years later, his teachings are enshrined in a book which is, incidentally, the bestseller of all time. So he's a pretty good teacher. I think the best ever. Brilliant at training, brilliant at communicating, and lest we forget, given, and the presence of the 12 remind us of this, I think, in this story, lest we forget the focus of his teaching ministry, of his training ministry, is on these 12 dudes, right? These guys are 24-7 members of the Jesus Christ internship program. Oftentimes, when Jesus is explaining a parable, he's only explaining the meaning of it to these guys. They are the focus of his training, the focus of his teaching ministry. Now, the Lord's philosophy of teaching wasn't simply imparting facts. It wasn't simply for the apostles to memorize, like, the five most important moral teachings of the master. The focus of his teaching wasn't so much about information. It was about transformation, right? It was about changing them. 
Now, today, when we think about teachers, we think about schools. We think about classrooms. We think about, like I'm thinking university or college here. We think about students needing to arrive with their textbook at a certain location at a certain time. At that time, the teacher will arrive, will begin imparting knowledge. When that time is over, the books are put up, put back in the backpacks. The students go off to their dorms or wherever they want to go. Teacher packs up the teacher stuff, goes back, and they'll meet again at the next appointed hour. That's kind of how we think about teaching, or at least how I kind of think about teaching today. It wasn't like that with Jesus. The apostles are with him all the time. They are eating together. They're sleeping together. They're walking together. They're joking together. They're together all the time. And their classroom was a very, very, very experiential classroom. Oftentimes, Jesus is not teaching in the traditional sense. He is telling them provocative stories prompted by things that they're seeing or things that they're experiencing together, provocative stories designed to show them what the kingdom is like or help them feel what the kingdom is like in their hearts. Other times, he is teaching them by embracing a child or by touching a man with leprosy. Or by healing someone who's been sick from birth. Or teaching them by praying over them. One thing teachers do today, even today, is give quizzes. Sorry, high school grads, you're going to get that even in college. Okay, Quizzes. And one thing that holds true, whether it's the 21st century or the 1st century, students do not much enjoy quizzes. We don't look forward to them generally, unless you are a real geek. The Canaanite woman and her situation provide an excellent opportunity for Master Jesus to throw a pop quiz. He knows that the Israelites for centuries and centuries have had a lot of hatred, a lot of bigotry, a lot of prejudice toward Canaanites. He knows that. He knows that his apostles have some of that in their hearts still. He knows that. They don't see her. His 12 interns don't see her as a tortured mother. They see her as an infidel, as an idol worshiper, and as one who deserves nothing from their master, the rabbi. So in this divine pop quiz, Jesus appears to share their prejudices. Are you with me? He appears to share their prejudices. Guys, y'all know I wasn't sent to the Canaanites. I wasn't sent by God to the Gentiles. I was sent to the Israelites. I was sent to God's sons and daughters, people just like you. So, of course, we're not going to waste any time on this dog on this outsider, on this Gentile, on this woman, on this annoyance. Jesus wants to see if they have picked up anything from their experience with him. 
from their discipleship? Have they, have they begun to be transformed into loving servants of God who love God and who love humanity in all of its forms? Has his message of love, even loving your enemies, has that gone from here to here? Has the transformation happened? And the 12 apostles, of course, have absolutely no idea that they're experiencing a pop quiz. Of course, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, if the apostles realize, oh, Jesus is testing us. This is a quiz. Then they're all going to be like, oh, 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 oh. We're supposed to love her, right? We're supposed to heal her, right? But they do not see this coming at all. And since it appears that Jesus is in sync with their shallow prejudices, they are free to be, well, they're free to be themselves. Unfortunately, they don't pass the quiz. They have no clue that they are failing or that a quiz is even going on until Jesus turns to her at the end of the encounter and says, Woman, you have great faith. By the way, one chapter earlier, Jesus told one of them about their level of faith. When when Peter was trying to walk on the water, one chapter earlier, Jesus said, Peter, you of little faith. Peter, Son of Israel, Peter, member of my elite discipleship academy, Peter, future church leader, Peter, you of little faith, woman, Canaanite, woman, demon possession in your family, woman, marginalized, desperate woman, you of great faith. Mm. She gets back home. The demons are gone. Her daughter is whole. She has her darling back. Peter and, and the disciples, look, they understood This was a mission to change the world. This is the Messiah, Peter proclaimed, right, at one point. This is the, we're going to change the world. They just didn't understand that changing the world starts with changing yourself. Before the world is turned upside down, before the world is transformed, you got to look in the mirror and invite God to change you. I love what Leo Tolstoy wrote one time. He said, everyone thinks of changing humanity. No one thinks of changing themselves. Isn't that true? Watching TV or reading a blog or whatever, driving down the road, talking about what's wrong out there. Talking about how messed up the world is, how messed up Washington, D.C. is, how messed up Hollywood is. Everyone thinks of changing humanity. No one thinks of changing themselves. So what about us? 
Our discipleship cannot be, must not be reduced to Sunday at church. Our discipleship program is supposed to be a 24-7 experience with Jesus Christ as well. It's about being open to Jesus, learning from Jesus, listening to Jesus, feeling the heart of Jesus, being changed by Jesus. The Bible wasn't the only textbook that Jesus used with the twelve. The Bible isn't the only textbook Jesus is going to use with you either. He wants you to be part of his immersion program. From when you wake up to when you go to bed, the two of you walking together into the hallway of your school or your university, into the street, into the supermarket, into the job, into the neighborhood, into the city, you and Jesus walking together. Now you may think, hey, wait a second, that was different. This is Peter, this is James, this is John. These are guys who actually physically walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, prayed with Jesus, different from them. He's not here anymore. But Jesus says that he does still walk with his disciples. In fact, this group, as they're anticipating Jesus is talking about his death, he's talking about going to be with the Father, and they're perplexed. What are we going to do without you? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm going to be with you in a more intimate way. I'm going to be with you in a more intimate way. Up until this point, it has been walking with you from now on, after my death on the cross, I will be in you. Listen to John chapter 14. We'll kind of wrap up here. John chapter 14, 16 to 21. Jesus talking to them, preparing them for his death. And I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I still come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And this is the big verse here, verse 20. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus, disciple, Jesus, believer, Jesus is in you. Of course you walk with him. Of course he's with you at school or at the supermarket. He is in you. Jesus is like, this is even better than me just being with you. I am in you. Will you pray fervently? Will you seek fervently my presence in your life? Will you allow me to teach you? Will you allow me to burden you with the things that burden me? Will, I, will you allow me to cause you to rejoice and be glad in the things that make me happy? Will you allow me to change you? Will you pay attention? Because class is in session wherever you are. As Jesus lives in you, and as you walk with him in your world, you'll see what discipleship is about. 
Jesus will test you. Jesus will quiz you. He will, you will experience his compassionate heart. You will experience his love. Fred Craddock, one of my favorite preachers, who's now kind of pretty much retired, but probably will never fully retire. Fred Craddock wrote great words about this idea. He wrote, To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill, laying it on the table, and saying, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality is, for most of us, that he sends us to the bank, has us cash in that $1,000 for quarters. And we go through life putting 25 cents here, 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost, kid. Go into a committee meeting, handing a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. 